0: Well, our focus this evening is on God's perfection of immutability. Now, among all of the perfections of God, this is one of those where many will often respond and say, well, why is this so important? Why do we need to take time in studying this, and what is immutability anyway? Certainly, there are a lot of misconceptions about this perfection, but Let me just begin by giving an illustration of why this perfection of God is so needed for us and why we demonstrate in our lives such a lack of understanding of this perception or of this perfection in our daily living. And it comes down to our fear. So often we are paralyzed by anxiety, weighed down, burdened. And in particular, our anxiety o- is over the unknown. Our anxiety is over what we cannot predict. And if you stop and think of it, how often are, are we burdened by this very fear of what will come tomorrow, of the circumstances that are right around the corner, of what will happen And the reason why we're plagued by such fear so often is that we do not understand God's immutability. The solution to those fears, the fear of the unpredictable, the anxiety that we face over what tomorrow will bring, all springs from a failure to understand and appreciate and appropriate this wonderful perfection of God into our lives so this is very much a necessary study for us this evening. And as we begin, we have to, to start with a, a proper definition of what immutability means. What, is, what does it mean when we say that God is immutable? When we talk about the immutability of God, we are referring to His unchanging existence. Very simply, the immutability of God refers to the fact, to the reality that he does not change. That's what immutability means. If you look at the term mutable, that term means to be capable of change or to be susceptible to either internal or external influences that can bring about a change in, in character or in nature. Often we think of that kind of change as a a good thing. It's a change for the better, or sometimes it's also a change for the worse. Think of our aging is change, and none of us is really that excited about turning the the calendar with respect to our years. In that case, our mutability, our change, is for the worse. We feel increased aches and pains and gray hair or less hair. Uh, we start to walk slower and have problems with remembering and all those kinds of things. Mutability means that, that something, someone, is susceptible to either internal or external influences that bring about these kinds of changes. In fact, by definition, anything that is created is mutable. Anything that is created is mutable. By very definition, created things are mutable things. Why? Very simply, if something is created, it has come into being. That has changed from nothing to something. And by very definition, that which is created can also be dissolved. So when we think of creation, everything that we see, it's all mutable. You look around even in this worship center, and it has changed over the last year. The colors have changed. The carpet has changed. This is a normal part of life. We look at each other, and we don't look the same as we did a couple of years ago. That's part of of our existence. But God does not change, and His immutability, the fact that He does not change, is one of the most... Vivid illustrations of the great distinction that exists between him and us. God's holy other existence. He belongs in a category completely of his own. He is impervious to any of these influences. He is incapable of changing and That is hard for us to understand because for us, especially as, as Christians, we recognize that it is the very, the the very essence of virtue to change. Sanctification is all about change. And so we think about change as good and the opportunity and the ability to change is good. But in God's perfection, we come across something in which he is unable to do. And that is he is unable to change. And we can understand that when we look at it this way. In himself, in his perfect existence, he can never become better. He can never become worse. If you think of it, if he could become better, he's not perfect right now. If he could become better, if he could change to something better, it means he's lacking something at this point. He's not perfect. Or, if you look at it, in the other way that God could somehow get worse, he would also not be perfect because what kind of perfection would be willing to discard perfection for something less? That's not perfection. So when we say God is unable to change, that is not something that somehow limits God. That is an expression of deity. That is an expression of the divine essence that he is unable to do things that God that, that that mark things that are not God. He's not able to, to die. He is not able to change. Inside of himself, there is nothing that motivates him. There's nothing that prompts him or influences him to change. He is perfect in existence. And on the outside, outside of God, as it relates to creation, there is nothing in creation that influences God to change, that affects God and His essence, His character, His nature in any way. He is not influenced. He is not affected by what takes place. His essence never changes. You see, we have to understand that only God, in distinction from everything else, only God, is perfect being. And as Theologians will often say, everything else is always becoming. Only God is perfect being. Everything else is always becoming, is always in a, in a place of change. And 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 we look at it this way as well and realize that the agent of that change, the one who stands behind it all as the Lord of the universe. Has the great ancient of days who cannot change, he is the agent of changing everything else. And, he's, and he started that all through his act of creation, and he is orchestrating that all through moving things toward his ultimate ends. He is the agent of change, and yet, in light of all of that, he still is not changed by that which he changes, he is immutable. Now, again, it's helpful to contrast that with, with what we experience in our lives, and it helps us understand why this is such a difficult concept for us to think of. Think of the mutability of man, of our own mutability. Think of it, first of all, in the, in the sphere of physical existence. We are never two days the same. We are never two hours the same. We start off life. We go through different stages of development, mentally, physically. We, we grow, we develop, we plateau, and then we start to decline. But what's even interesting in our decline is that we never revert to what we once were. We, we never come back to a place and re-become what we were. Never. We never will experience what we once were. We're always in this constant state of change. You never step in the same river twice is the same. And we certainly experience that in our physical existence, our emotional existence, our mental existence. And you can even look at this in terms of our spiritual existence. We are never the same from one day to the next. And, and you can look at it this way in terms of major categories. We once were lost. As Ephesians chapter two, verse five says, we were dead in our transgressions, but we were made alive. God made us alive together with Christ. He recreated that. Second Corinthians five, 17. We became new creatures in Christ at the moment of our regeneration. But even in that moment of regeneration when we were made new creatures in Christ, we were given a, 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 a transformed nature, made alive, we don't stay in that. We, we enter this lifelong process which we call progressive sanctification, this process of Transformation. And Paul so well summarizes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 when he says this. Now notice the language of change in this text. He says, we all with unveiled, uh, unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We're, we're in this process of transformation into the image of Christ, and with every passing day, with every passing year, it is a transformation from glory to glory. There is more and more and more likeness of the glorious Christ in us. And then, of course, we look forward to that day when the experiences of this life will, will be ended, and we will be glorified. And consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and notice his language of change in that text as well. He says this, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. He says, "'Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed.'" In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. He says it twice. We're going to be changed even from our Christian state in this life to the next state. And you might say then, well, okay, once we reach that state, change will end once and for all. And we will enter into our own immutability and glory. And the answer to that question is no. Yes, we will be done away with sin once and for all, never to be tempted again. But even in the new heavens and the new earth, we will remain creatures, which means that in that glorified state, we will continue to experience new things. We will continue to experience new knowledge we will have these new experiences, and they will not change us in terms of our glory, but they will change our knowledge and, and, and growth, even in that future state. We are creatures. We are affected beings, and we will be affected by glory. We are changeable, and we we must look at change as good, and woe to the man who wants to persist in his state that he is today. Now we look at change as a virtue, but in God, he is the opposite. Stephen Charnock, in describing the difference, expresses it in these words. He writes this, quote, Creatures are in a perpetual flux. Something is acquired or something lost every day. A man is the same with respect to existence as when he was a child, but there is a new succession of quantities and qualities in him. Every day he acquires something until he comes to his maturity. Every day he loses something till he comes to his end. A man is not the same at night that he was in the morning. Something is expired and something is added. Every day there is change in his age a change in his substance, a change in his accidents or, or his features. But God hath his whole being in one and the same point or moment of eternity. He receives nothing as an addition to what he was before. He loses nothing of what he was before. He is always the same excellency and perfection in the same infiniteness as ever. That's a deep thought. But when we dig down deep into that and when we begin to recognize the the consequences of this reality, we realize this is precious. And this is the solution to our fears. Another theologian, Herman Bavink, in his Reformed Dogmatics, expresses it this way. He says this, quote, "...the doctrine of God's immutability is highly significant for religion. The difference between the Creator and the creature hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. All that is creaturely is in a process of becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving in search of rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest only in Him who is pure being without becoming. Now, when we look at this, this, um, this perfection, as John said as we began singing uh, this evening, that this perfection fits harmoniously with all of God's other perfections. And so, for example, we see that God's immutability is an expression of his eternality, that he is without beginning or end god is independent of time he, he he's not subject to time he's above time he has neither beginning nor end and since he doesn't experience any succession of time he does not experience change anything that is subject to time anything that needs time anything that lives within time is always Changing, change and time go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. But God is not subject to time. He does not exist within time. He has created time, and he stands above it. So God's immutability is an expression of that eternality. Moreover, God's immutability is also an expression of his aseity. We've looked at this already. That God is self-sufficient. That he is not dependent on anything at all outside of himself for his being, for all his eternal delight and joy and satisfaction, his existence. He is not one iota dependent on anything. He did not create because he needed something. Instead, creation came out of the overflow of his glory. God himself is the source of life. He is not reliant and And, and, and therefore, because God is, as the theologians will say, ah, say, because God is self-sufficient, he is never affected, changed by anything that he has created. God's immutability is also an expression of his faithfulness. God does not waver in his commitments. He does not waver in his Decrees that he has made. He does not waver in his promises. He is reliable not only because he is all powerful, omnipotent, and so can accomplish whatever he decides to accomplish. He is, he is reliable not only because of that omnipotence, but he is reliable for the very fact that he does not change. His word is always yes and amen. It is never yes one day and then no the next, because he does not change. Immutability is an expression of his faithfulness. And that's why this this perfection is often included in songs about God's faithfulness and, and, and his glory. And so, for example, the hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, The third stanza of this hymn, we find it in Hymns of Grace number four, the third stanza reads this way, frail as summer's flower we flourish, blows the wind and it is gone. But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. Alleluia. Alleluia. Praise the High Eternal One. Now, certainly there are a lot of misconceptions about immutability and, and what it means, a lot of misconceptions that exist because of the fact that that perfection of immutability is so different from our experience. One of the, the misconceptions is that to affirm immutability somehow means that God is now impersonal. impersonal. He's now detached. He's, he's motionless. He's what you could say stoic. That's how some people think when they hear the description of God's immutability. He's, he's now stoic. And it does help us for just a, a moment to understand what the Stoics taught regarding God. Stoicism was uh, a philosophy that originated 3rd century B.C. with a certain Zeno of Athens. And there in Athens, he would teach in this long porchway called a stoa. And because he taught in that long porchway in Athens, they called his school, the philosophical system that he taught, they they called it stoicism. And Zeno and his, his followers taught that there is a divine force, some kind of ultimate force, in the universe, you could call it reason, you could call it fate or providence, and they believed that this divine force ruled the universe being completely indifferent to the pleasures and pains of men. Therefore, as followers of this philosophy, they believed that man's lot in life was to somehow mimic this divine force in being detached and impersonal being somehow motionless with respect to the circumstances in in life. And they believed that the best thing to do is to be apathetic to the things that impact us, to to get rid of emotion, to get rid of passions, to to not succumb to them, not live with them or, or by them. And some can wrongly conclude that when we when we talk about God's immutability, that this is what we're talking about. That, that God is kind of like this frozen peace. That, that he's, not, he's, he's not in any way involved. That he's not personal. That he doesn't have compassion or grace. That he doesn't express true love, etc. In response to this, Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology, he wrote this. He said, quote, The divine immutability should not be understood as implying immobility, as if there is no movement in God. The Bible teaches us that God enters into manifold relations with man, and as it were, he lives their life with them. There is change round about him, change in the relations of men to him, but there is no change in his being, his attributes, his purpose, his motives, his actions, or his promises. In other words, what Berkoff is saying is this, that God, by, by virtue of his perfection, remains completely immutable, unchanged, even though he is able to interact fully, personally, with his creation. And again, that is so very difficult for us to understand because we can't do that. As affected beings, we are always affected by that with which we interact. With every individual with whom we interact, with every circumstance, if we interact, if we're conscious, if we're there, we cannot escape. No matter how hard we try, we cannot escape but be impacted and changed, for better or for worse... By that other person, even if it's just a little bit, or by that circumstance, we're affected by those things. But in God's perfection, He is involved, He is personal, He's not motionless in a frozen pose, but He can interact and never be affected by the creation with which He interacts. And again, that boggles our minds. Robert Raymond, in his textbook on theology, writes this, thus, whenever divine impassibility is interpreted to mean that God is impervious to human pain or incapable of empathizing with human grief, it must be roundly denounced and rejected. To, to affirm that God is immutable is not to deny that He is a God of compassion. He is truly a God of compassion. Exodus thirty-three nineteen says, "'I will make my goodness pass before you, Moses, and I will proclaim,' he's speaking to Moses, "'the name of the Lord before you.'" And he says this, "'I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion.'" God is a God of mercy. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says that we have been saved because he is rich in mercy. He is a God of true love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. He is a God of care. We read 1 Peter 5, 9 that we are to cast all of these anxieties, these fears that so often plague us, we are to cast all of them on him. He's the impervious one. He's the one that can handle them. So we are to cast our fears on him, but not only because he is, he is immutable, but we are to cast our cares on him because why? He cares for us. God is also... A God of wrath. He's not indifferent to the atrocities of sin. He is not indifferent indifferent to things like abortion. He is not indifferent to murder, to lying, to expressions of lust. He is not indifferent to the commission of sin. No, he is a God of righteous indignation, and he is angry at sinners. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 to 24 says this, Watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made to you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. He is a God of jealousy. He is a God of wrath. Revelation chapter Chapter 19, verse 5, from His mouth comes the sharp sword, so that with it He strikes down, referring to the second coming of Christ, He strikes down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Now, God is a God of wrath. We're going to look at that next week, next Wednesday. Wednesday. But what's important to note here when we talk about these things is that we must never, as affected beings, as those who only understand these things like compassion and mercy and grace and love and wrath and jealousy, from our affected position as creatures, we must never, ever project those onto God as if He undergoes the same things that we do. As affected beings, our emotions are the result of the changes happening within us or to us. Something happens, and what, what happens? Emotion comes out, right? You stub your toe, emotion comes out. So there's external forces that create this. There are internal forces that create in us change, and as a result, we express emotions, our emotions are the result of these changes. But not only that, the emotions themselves lead to more changes in us. The emotions that we exhibit, we feel, they they lead us to become different people. And the more you feel those emotions, the more impact and influence those emotions have upon you. But that is not God. God is not affected that way. He's never improved. He is never informed or inflicted by these things. He never succumbs to anything. He never switches from from this to that. And he never submits. He always remains immutable. He always remains self-sufficient, fully in himself satisfied and perfect. Again, it leads us to the words of another hymn, immortal, invisible, in hymns of grace number 36. Again, third stanza says this, to all life thou givest, to both great and small. In all life thou livest, the true life of all, we blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree, and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. Now, from where do we get that truth? Let's look now at the biblical testimony to God's immutability. And we can take the testimony that, that we see in Scripture, all those verses that testify to the fact that God doesn't change, and that that's a good thing, that's a perfect thing. We can put it into four categories. We see God's immutability in His very existence. There's no beginning or end. We see God's immutability in His perfections. His love, His mercy, all those perfections do not change. We see God's God's immutability also in His purposes, in His decrees, in His plans. They never change. And we see God's immutability in His promises, that what He has promised to us, His redemptive promises do not change change. And so we're going to go through each of these and look at some of the biblical texts that give support for these. First of all, God is immutable in his very existence. There is no beginning or end. He does not fluctuate. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now the psalmist, by virtue of his language here, is moving from particulars then to, to graders and then to the greatest. First of all, the mountains—just looking at one aspect of the created world, the mountains—and he, he he identifies the fact that they came into existence. They once were not, but they were born. And then he looks at it even bigger. And, and looks at the whole earth, the whole world, and, 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 and also identifies the fact that these things have also came into existence. And then he says, from everlasting to everlasting, from farther than what we can see in one direction to farther than what we can see in the other, without beginning or without end, you are God. He does not say you are becoming God. He does not say you were God. He simply says you are. He understands God's perfect being. Psalm 102, verses 23 to 27. The psalmist writes, He has weakened my strength in the way, He has shortened my days. I say, Oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to end. The psalmist in his day had a very good understanding of the mutation of creation. He has no illusion that creation is eternal. He recognizes it has a beginning and that it is coming to an end, that God will do something else. He will switch garments But in contrast to creation, he recognizes one thing that is utterly different, and that is God. There is no end to his years. He is before all and always the same. A.W. Pink responds to this, and he says, quote, "...he cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect, and being perfect, he cannot change for the worse." Altogether unaffected by anything outside of himself, improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is altogether uninfluenced by the flight of time. There is no wrinkle upon the brow of eternity. Therefore, his power can never diminish nor his glory ever fade. Number two, we can also look at texts and find these texts that testify to the fact that God is immutable in his perfections, not only in his simple existence, but also in his perfections, how he reveals himself to be. Psalm 100 verse 35, notice the emphasis here on God's goodness, his loving kindness, faithfulness. He says this, for the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. You know, there have been these these ideas that have been expressed, especially by those who just hate God, that somehow the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, he's the God of wrath. And now he's become the God of love and he accepts everybody and affirms everything. Such views are simply antithetical to scripture. The psalmist here testifies to Yahweh's enduring, eternal, everlasting loving kindness. Psalm 119, verse 90, your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You established the earth, and and it stands because of it. Malachi, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, then I will draw near to you for judgment, God says, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers And against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. What is referenced there is God's goodness, his commitment to his promises, his decree, his decision to be good to the sons of Jacob, and despite the fact that there were all these individuals in the land that deserved and would receive wrath, the people of Jacob as a whole would not be consumed because God's loving kindness to them is from everlasting to everlasting. John, James chapter 1, 17 Again, the goodness of God is displayed here. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now you look at us, look at yourself in the mirror, and you can be defined by those words, variation and shifting shadows. Even in our best attempts, how often... Do we not live up to what we have said? Our yes becomes a no. Our no becomes a yes. There is variation all the time. We are fickle and always reneging, and yet God is the one with whom there is no variation and never a shifting shadow. Again, A.W. Pink says this, whatever the attributes of God were before the universe was called into existence, they are precisely the same now, and will remain so forever, necessarily so, for they are the very perfections, the essential qualities of his being. Semper item, always the same, is written across every one of them. His power is unabated, his wisdom undiminished, his holiness unsullied. The attributes of God can no more change than deity can cease to be. Our third category of testimony to his immutability is found in those texts which testify that he is immutable in his purposes, not only in his existence, not only in his perfections, his attributes, but also in his purposes, in his decrees, in his decisions. Job 42, verse 2, where Job repents before God, and Job confesses this, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm thirty-three, verse eleven: The Lord nullifies the counsel, the decisions of the nations; he frustrates the plans of the peoples. But now, notice this: the counsel of the Lord stands forever; the plans of his heart from generation to generation. He doesn't change his mind. Proverbs 19, verse 21, many plans are in man's heart. Notice the plurality there. Many plans are in man's heart. And there's many because we're constantly changing. And from one day to the next, the plan changes. That's why there's many ideas, many decisions. But in God, notice this, but the counsel, singular, of the Lord will stand. It's singular because it's immutable. Isaiah 14 verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, surely just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. Again, the immutability of God over and over again. Hebrews chapter 6, 17 to 18, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Another quote by A.W. Pink here. God's purpose never alters. One of two things causes a man to change his mind and reverse his plans. Want of foresight to anticipate everything or lack of power to execute them. But as God is both omniscient and omnipotent, there is never any need for him to revise his decrees. Finally, fourth category. God is immutable in his promises any promise that he makes will never be taken back. Notice Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? These are all rhetorical questions And they express that which, again, we have such a hard time believing because we have faced broken promises time and time and time again from each other, from other men. We know of everyone's broken promises. We keep records of them. That never happens with God. When he makes a promise to you, it stands. It will not be retracted. There will not be small print added later on. What he promises is true. And when he promises to save you, when he promises that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raises him from the dead, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved, that's not a promise that he retracts. It remains just as much true today as it did when the Apostle Paul wrote that to the Romans in 80.55 in Romans chapter 10. It is just as true, and it will be true ten years from now. Nothing has changed in his promises. First Samuel 15, 29. The glory of Israel will not change, uh, excuse me, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. Luke 21, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That leads Michael Horton to write this in Scripture the virtue in God's changelessness lies in the assurance that God is able, or excuse me, God is reliable in his promises not only because He wills to be faithful to His Word, but because He cannot change His eternal counsels, regardless of what other creatures do. Regardless. He will not change. And for that, we can be thankful. Now, what does this require of us? How does this impact our lives? Let me give you a few closing implications of this precious truth first of all, remember how different God is from you. This is where we must begin. We, we must recognize the great creator-creature distinction. God's immutability is one of the most striking evidences of the infinite difference, the infinite distance in existence between Him and us. And we have to come back to this over and over again because so often we project onto God our ideals of Godhood. And that is often just our own intuition, what what we experience. And this concept of immutability flies right in our face and reminds us that he is not like us. It challenges us to throw away all of our, our man-centered, man-invented ideas of who God is. Again, A.W. Pink said, Immutability is one of the divine perfections which is not sufficiently pondered. It is one of the excellencies of the Creator which distinguishes Him from all other creatures. And again, Herman Bavink, the difference between the Creator and the creatures hinges on this contrast between being and becoming. So, as we remember this difference, what should it What What impact should it have? It should bring us to humility, profound humility. And every time that that we stub our toe or go through a a difficult circumstance, it it should temper us and cause us to put our hands on our mouths before we would ever say something negative toward God. Again, quoting from Stephen Charnock, He writes this, what an infinite distance is there between the immutable God and the mutable man. And how should we bewail this flittingness in our nature? There is a mutability in us as creatures, and a creature cannot be but mutable by nature. Otherwise, it were not a creature but God. The establishment of any creature is from grace and gift. Naturally, we tend to nothing as we have come from nothing. This creature mutability is not our sin, yet it should cause us to lie down under the sense of our own nothingness in the presence of our creator. Essentially, he's saying it should cause us to be silent. And when we really ponder this, we, we we see how minuscule we are, and how awesome he is. So let this sink in and let it bring about true humility. Second, refuse to trust in mutable things. If you think of the definition of idolatry, what is idolatry? Idolatry essentially comes down to this. It is the worship of a mutable object. Whether that be money, whether that's your own physique, whether that's your career, your family, your pension, all of those things are mutable. And it's the very definition of stupidity to put your hope and trust, and affection, and priority in that which is mutable. Why would you do that? Why would you trust and live for that which can burn up? For that which fades? For that which dissolves? And yet, how that's part of our flesh? In fact, there's an interesting text. I won't read it all, but in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 9 to 20, go there later, Isaiah paints this picture of these idle workers and how vain and stupid it is that they themselves get their tools and a piece of wood or some metal. They fashion it. Some of it they use for other purposes, to cook their meal, for example. They get tired. They can't finish. they got to rest. they got to eat. And then they come back to it, and they make this thing. And then they set it up in their house, and then they bow down to it. And meanwhile, the thing is gone, you know, burns up in in the next forest fire. And yet this is what mankind does. He puts his faith in mutable things. And what this doctrine tells us, what the perfection of God says, is in your worship, in what you adore, what you magnify, what you love, look for that which never changes. And then you found it. And you'll only find one thing that never changes. And that is God. And he is worthy because he's immutable. Immutable. Again, Stephen Charnock, he says this, Perishing things can be no support to the soul. If we would have rest, we must run to God and rest in God. How contemptible should that be to us, whose fashion shall pass away, which shall not endure long in its present form and appearance. Contemptible as a a rest, not contemptible as the work of God, contemptible as an end, not contemptible as the means to attain our end. If these things, if these must be changed, how unworthy are our, our other things to be the center of our souls that change in our very using of them and slide away in our very enjoyment of them. And so look at your lives. What are you enjoying right now? What are you pursuing right now? What is the affection, the the target of your heart? And let me just say this, if it is in anything, if that affection that's driving you, if that pursuit that's driving you is in something mutable, you've got it wrong. You're settling for that which is but a shadow and a vapor, and you'll be proven to be a fool. Thirdly, rely. Rely upon the promises of God, Because he's immutable, this is what we must take from it. We can rely upon the promises of God. And think of it this way. What hope would there be? What, what hope would there be if the gospel and, and all of the promises that are available to us through the gospel, if all of that was made by a God who's different tomorrow than he is today? Th- there would be no hope in that. How could you ever trust in that kind of a gospel who would say, today is this way of salvation, tomorrow is something else. Today I will hold out to you this promise, but tomorrow I'll renege and I'll hold out a different one. There would be no hope. At the same time, let me ask you this. Why would you not believe the promises of one who never changes? Why would you not? Here you have presented to you in the scriptures a character of God, the character will never change and he's holding out these promises of the gospel why would you not trust those promises he's immutable you ought to you must you're obligated because of his very character think of just one text even here isaiah 54 verse 10 he says this in relation to the promises he's made to the people of israel he says for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake But my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And some of you in this room may not have embraced the gospel. You may be wondering, should I believe it if he says to me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Can I believe that? And I want to tell you, that promise is made by the God who cannot change. And that promise stands, whether you believe it or not. So why wouldn't you? That, of course, becomes the great the great comfort to our souls. And for us who have embraced that promise, that is the guarantee his character. Martin Luther put it in these words. He says, "'The greatest and only consolation of Christians in their adversities is knowing that God lies not, but does all things immutably, and that his will cannot be resisted, changed, or hindered.'" Rest in those promises. You may have even embraced the gospel, and yet you're worried about, you know, whether you'll make it to the end, whether you will actually enter into glory. You've embraced those promises, but you wonder whether God will fulfill his part because you, 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 just, you don't see the kind of growth that you want to see and you think, well, maybe God will renege. Well, here is precious rest for your souls. When he promises, he makes good on it. And when the promise is given without any quid pro quo and he extends that to you, And you embrace it, that same promise carries you all the way through to the end. Finally, reverence God that he changes not. Just love him and adore him for this. I want to read the lyrics as we close of a song written by Horatius Benar in 1861. It's not well known at all. It's called, I Hear the Word of Love. And here, Horatius Benar combines the beauty of the gospel and its promises with the unchangeable nature of Christ. I'll just read these stanzas, and we'll close. It goes like this, I hear the words of love, I gaze upon the blood, I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. Tis everlasting peace Sure as Jehovah's name, tis stable as his steadfast throne, forevermore the same. The clouds may go and come, and storms may sweep the sky. This blood-sealed friendship changes not, the cross is ever nigh. My love is oft times low, my joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. That which can shake the cross may shake the peace it gave, which tells me Christ has never died or never left the grave. Till then my peace is sure, it will not, cannot yield. Jesus, I know, has died and lives on this firm rock I build. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. The cross still stands unchanged, though heaven is now his home. The mighty stone is rolled away, but yonder is his tomb. And yonder is my peace, the grave of all my woes. I know the Son of God has come. I know he died and rose. I know he liveth now at God's right hand above I know the throne on which He sits. I know His truth and His love. And that truth and love is immutable. Let's give Him thanks for that. Indeed, Heavenly Father, we come to You as the One who gives life to all, to both great and small, that in you is the true life, in you is true eternal being, and we as your creatures are so very different, and indeed we blossom and flourish like leaves on a tree, and then wither and perish, and yet in all of this not changest. And we thank you that you are not some frozen pose, that in your immutability you are not impersonal or distant, yet in that unchangeableness you have related to us, that you have had compassion, and that you have sent your Son to take on human nature, to die in our stead, to change us from our lost state and sin to an ever-transforming conformity to Christ, and then to give us the promise that one day we will be made like Him. Father, we pray that this wonderful perfection of yours, that in all of this work of redemption you change us not, that that would give us great comfort to our souls. And I pray for those who are also here who have not come to believe that this wonderful truth, this perfection of yours, would attract them, this beauty of your unchangeable nature would attract them to come to you for rest. Because only in your immutable existence can there be peace. We pray for them. Draw them near. and We do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.